the book of Colossians and looking specifically at how we can live lives that expect joy. Sounds like a good subject, right? Uh, I wanted to just pray as we begin, and I wanted to also pray specifically for people who were affected by the hurricane that's come through this week all throughout Florida and along the coast. Um, a quick blurb, if you're looking for somebody to give money to, to uh, help those who have been affected, Convoy of Hope is our preferred uh, outreach arm for this sort of a thing. They do great work uh, reaching out to people in uh, areas where they've been hit with national natural disasters. Uh, so uh, Convoy of Hope, I think it's convoyofhope.org. There we go. Uh, feel free to give that way if you're looking for that sort of a thing. Uh, but let's pray. Let's pray both for our morning and for people who have been affected by this. So Jesus, we just come before you right now. I just say thank you for your presence that's already here. Thank you for how, how you want to move in our lives this morning. And we do just lift up all of those who have been affected by the hurricane this week, God. We pray for your mercy and your grace to be poured out on them. Uh, we pray for those who have lost loved ones, those who uh, have, been, uh, have spent very uh, stressful, nervous weeks waiting to hear from people who have been down there. Pray for people that have been displaced, people who have lost homes and property. Uh, pray for those who have been uh, injured in any way in this time, God. We just pray for your grace, for you to be uh, just pouring out your healing and restoring power uh, in their lives and each and every one of them. And we do pray for Convoy of Hope and the Red Cross and so many other organizations who will be uh, reaching out and providing for people during this time. We pray for your, your grace over them. We pray that they will show your love uh, to those who have been hurt during this, Lord. We just ask for you to pour out your mercy all over Florida, all over the East Coast by those who have been affected, Jesus. And I pray for us this morning, God, let us uh, become more and more aware of who you are, of how you're working in our world, how you want to move in our lives, build up our expectation of joy, teach us what it looks like to live lives that are full of an expectancy for joy. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, is joy simply happiness? The great semantics argument of the past century, right? Are these just the same thing and we just try and twist them into different directions? Uh, the definition of joy in our dictionary is a feeling of great pleasure or happiness. So that clarifies everything for you, right? So essentially, these two words are defined by each other, which means that we get zero clarity from it, except in one very important way. For all important purposes, in our culture, in the English language, these two words mean the exact same thing. So I'm not even going to go into that argument this morning because... I just want us to, to start at that place. We're talking kind of in our culture about the same thing. What I want to focus on is how we can have joy or happiness in our lives. I think that's a little bit more important than the semantics this morning. You know, this is a subject that every guru wants to talk about, both self-appointed and otherwise. Uh, everybody wants to throw in their two cents. Uh, the chief guru in charge in America is none other than Oprah. I think we all realize that, right? Uh, she is kind of the spiritual headmistress of America. And she says that happiness is there for the taking and the making. Whoo! 
Now, I give Oprah a lot of a lot of grace because she seems very nice and her entire job is to come up with one-liners. Like that's her entire job. She gets paid millions of dollars to come up with catchy one-liners that we can grab a hold of and base our entire life off of. So, that that's a high standard. However, taking and making is one of the weakest definitions or pieces of advice I think I've ever heard. So, next, let's keep going. Gandhi said that happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Gandhi, now we're getting somewhere, right? Uh, he, He goes deeper. For Gandhi, happiness is really based on everything inside of you being aligned. Your words, your actions, your thoughts, all being on the same page, working in the same direction. If you have that, then you'll be happy. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, said that happiness is in your ability to love others. This is interesting. Tolstoy, for him, it's not just about kind of an alignment. It's about then using that to love other people, to to care about others in your life, with, I think, probably an implication that loving other people can be difficult. I don't think I need to go any further on that one. We understand that reality. Walt Whitman the iconic realist and humanist poet, he said that happiness, not in another place, but in this place, not for another hour, but for this hour. Essentially in very true Whitman form. I I always want to say like Whittonian. Can I make that up? Can I like trademark that? Because I think that would be really cool. So in true Whittonian form, He's saying that happiness is completely based on contentment. It's about being okay with your life as it is today. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, not wishing that you were somewhere else, but being content with your life as it is today, regardless of what that means and what that brings, what that looks like for you. Victor Hugo, the novelist, wrote that the supreme happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. I think this is interesting because he takes it in a a, a step forward because everybody else, it's been purely about up here. It's all about you aligning your thoughts, doing your, you know, kind of working yourself to a place where you can feel happiness. For Hugo, he's saying it's about kind of up here, but also recognizing that other people love you, that they care about you. And if you have that conviction, if you, if you believe that, then you'll be happy in your life. So all of this is really, uh, it starts to become a big mental exercise, I think. Uh, Finding joy is based on kind of mental conviction. Uh, It's based on loving others. Is it about just being content, like uh, Whitman wants us to think? Well, before I provide any answers, I want to further muddy the water for you uh, by turning to the, the screens and watching a clip from a 2004 TED Talk by a guy named uh, Dan Gilbert. And I apologize for the quality. It looks like it was recorded in 1985, not 2004. But with that being said, look to the screens. Here's an experiment we did at Harvard. We created a photography course, a black and white photography course, and we allowed students to come in and learn how to use a darkroom. So we gave them cameras, they went around campus, they took 12 pictures of their favorite professors in their dorm room and their, you know, their dog and all the other things they wanted to have Harvard memories of. They bring us the camera, we make up a contact sheet, they figure out which are the two best pictures, and we now spend six hours teaching them about dark rooms, and they blow two of them up, and they have two gorgeous eight by ten glossies of meaningful things to them, and we say, which one would you like to give up? They say, 
I have to give one up. Oh, yes, we need one as evidence of the class project. So you have to give me one. You have to make a choice. You get to keep one, and I get to keep one. Now, there are two conditions in this experiment. In one case, the students are told, but you know, if you want to change your mind, I'll always have the other one here. And in the next four days before I actually mail it to headquarters, I'll be glad to, yeah, headquarters. I'll be glad to swap it out with you. In fact, I'll come to your dorm room and give, just give me an email. Better yet, I'll check with you. You ever want to change your mind? It's totally returnable. The other half of the students are told exactly the opposite. Make your choice, and by the way, the mail is going out, gosh, in two minutes to England. Your picture will be winging its way over the Atlantic. You will never see it again. Now, half of the students in each of these conditions are asked to make predictions about how much they're going to come to like the picture that they keep and the picture they leave behind. Other students are just sent back to their little dorm rooms, and they are measured over the next three to six days on their liking and satisfaction with the pictures. Look at what we find. First of all, Here's what students think is going to happen. They think they're going to maybe come to like the picture they chose a little more than the one they left behind. But these are not statistically significant differences. It really, it's a very small increase, and it doesn't much matter whether they were in the reversible or irreversible condition. Wrong, oh, bad simulators. Because here's what's really happening, both right before the swap and five days later. People who are stuck with that picture, who have no choice, who can never change their mind, like it a lot. And people who are deliberating, should I return it? Have I gotten the right one? Maybe this isn't the good one. Maybe I left the good one. Have killed themselves. They don't like their picture. And in fact, even after the opportunity to swap has expired, they still don't like their picture. Why? Because the irreversible condition is not conducive to the synthesis of happiness. So here's the final piece of this experiment. We bring in a whole new group of naive Harvard students, and we say, you know, we're doing a photography course, and we can do it one of two ways. We could do it so that when you take the two pictures, you'd have four days to change your mind. Or we're doing another course where you take the two pictures, and you make up your mind right away, and you can never change it. Which course would you like to be in? Duh! 66% of the students, two-thirds, prefer to be in the course where they have the opportunity to change their mind. Hello, 66% of the students choose to be in the course in which they will ultimately be deeply dissatisfied with the picture. <laughs> because they do not know the conditions under which synthetic happiness grows. The people with the least amount of choices end up the happiest, is what all of the research came up with. It's interesting, right? I think this kind of points to the Whitman approach a little bit, that contentment is the real base of happiness. And there's a lot of good in all of this advice, in that research. But I don't know about you, but at, at the end of the day, the more that I read about how to be happy or how to find joy, the more I end up frustrated because it feels like I'm just playing psychological mind games with myself. It feels like I'm just trying to trick myself into believing that I'm actually happy, that it's just completely based off me. I'm not standing on anything solid. I'm just telling myself that it's better to be happy than it is to otherwise not be happy, and that that's all that it is. And it makes me start to just question, is that all there is to happiness? Is that all there is to joy? Is it all just about mind tricks?
and games that we play within our own head? Or can we have true lasting joy? And if so, what does that look like? Well, it should come as no surprise that I think that that answer is in the Bible. Uh, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a really great definition of joy in Galatians 5.22 when he names the characteristics that your life will show if you center your entire life around Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit. He names off these characteristics. He said that your life will look like this if it's focused on Jesus, that it will have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think that's it. I probably missed a couple. Uh, But you will have all these things. If your life is centered, is focused around Jesus, that will be the fruit that comes out of your life. And Paul's very specific when he names these characteristics. And specifically with the word joy, what that means in the original Greek is this. Gladness or a calm delight, something that is received. This last part is super important because everything else that I've told you has been reliant on who? You. You make your own happiness. You make your own joy. The Apostle Paul tells us that we do not make our own joy. It's given to us by God, by our loving Father, and that that's the only way that you will have a joy that is actually the base of your life, that's the fruit that comes out of your life, as if it's been given to you by God. I mentioned that we're going to be in the book of Colossians, and if you have your Bible, you want to open up to that. We're going to be in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's uh, kind of interesting because all the rest of his letters were written to churches that he had either started or lived in for a significant amount of time. Colossians, he's never been there, um, and he didn't start it. His, one of his disciples, one of his followers uh, that he had raised up, started this church in the town of Colossae, uh, which is an interesting name. Uh, used to be important, and now it's not. It used to be big, and now it's not. It's kind of just a regular town started by somebody that's not Paul. But he hears that false teachers are spreading some ridiculous stuff, and so he writes a letter. These false teachers were sharing a kind of Zen spiritualist uh, message of the gospel, putting their own twist on it that basically reduces Jesus to kind of level of a guru. It takes him away from being savior and makes him just a good teacher. And so Paul hears this and he immediately writes this letter to them, to this young church that's being tricked into following something that is not the message that he preaches, not the message that Jesus came to bring. And the heart of this letter really comes in the passages that we're going to look at this week and next week in verses uh, 5 through 20 of chapter 1. And N.T. Wright writes about this section of Colossians, and he says that the main reason why they should give thanks to God, why they should expect joy, is because of Jesus. If they give thanks, if they expect joy with full knowledge and understanding about who Jesus is and what Jesus has achieved, everything else will fall into place. The core, the center of it all is supposed to be Jesus. The key to growth, the key to maturity is having a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in our world, how he's working in our lives personally. 
And just so we're on the same page, when you see these phrases like deeper knowledge, this is part of the thing that Paul was writing to the Colossians about. That's not code for some code that you have to break. That's not a hint that the Da Vinci Code is real. Now, true, honest moment, I love the Da Vinci Code. I read that thing in two days. Um, I geek out over that sort of stuff. I didn't read it because I thought it was real. I read it because I geek out for anything that has to do with history and mystery. Uh, if those two things are together, I'm there. Uh, but there's no reality in that. That's not what the Bible tells us at all. In fact, all of the writers in the New Testament are really explicit about this. They're very, very clear that there's no like hidden level that you have to reach. You don't have to reach level 19 and then you go into the secret like cloudy place. There's no uh, numerical code that's written within the numbers and chapters of the Bible that were created actually like hundreds of years after they would have had to have been for that to be true anyway. There's no like secret messages in this. It's just there for us all to read at any time we want to. Jesus is clear about this in John 15, 15. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide, confide in his slaves. Now you're my friends since I have told you everything that the father told me. This isn't the Da Vinci Code. This is real life. And in real life, Jesus has opened it all up for us to be able to see. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is spend time with him. And what we're going to see in Colossians is that Paul is really clear. He's nice about it, but he's really clear. And he's saying, Colossians church, you got to grow up. You can't be twisted by this kind of fake nonsense that's being thrown in your faces. You know, and I know that that's not real. And he's saying that we need to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus' plan is. And that if we do that, then our gratitude's going to grow, that our joy's going to grow, that we're going to grow closer to Jesus in that. Joy only comes through knowing the power and presence of Jesus. And for the rest of our time, I want to look at how we can do that, how we can live lives that know that reality. So look at Colossians 1.9 with me. Let's read this. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Joy comes when you begin to learn God's will. If you want to experience joy in your life, then you need to know what Jesus is up to. You need to have a greater expectation of God's plan, both in your life and in our world. Paul's really clear. He tells them that they need to grow up, that they need to get to learn Jesus more deeply, more intimately. And if I can say that to us today, I'll say it like Paul would. You don't know Jesus well enough. I don't know Jesus well enough. We all need to know Jesus more. That's what he's clear about. He's telling us that our prayers need to be clear on this. We need a complete and a total knowledge of his will, of what he's up to. We need to pray that we'll know Jesus so deeply, so intimately, so intensely, that our lives will be changed forever by the knowledge that that brings, by the reality that that begins to bring to our hearts. And C.S. Lewis talked about this in his autobiography. It was called Surprised by Joy. And he talks about, uh, in kind of typical Lewis language, this otherworldly joy 
that he found going from an atheist to a follower of Jesus. And he said that as he began to get to know Jesus, that strangely enough within him, he found that something was growing. That the more that he learned, the more he wanted to know more. The more time that he spent with Jesus, the more that need, that hunger, that desire grew within him until it reached a point where it could never be satisfied, where there was nothing that could ever fill it because that desire was so strong that it couldn't be filled on this side of heaven before you see Jesus face to face. And there's nothing that could satisfy it. No earthly happiness could reach that. He said, the more that you know Jesus in his will, the more joy that you will have. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Then the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power, so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. The way you live will always honor and please the Lord. Paul is telling us something important here. He's saying that joy comes when you live a life that's filled with obedience to God. Not quite Oprah's three quick steps to having happiness in your life, right? In his classic book, The Celebration of Disciplines, Richard Foster wrote that the only thing that will produce genuine joy is obedience. The only thing that will produce genuine joy in your life is obedience to Jesus and to his will. You know, I feel like these are kind of, uh, these first two points are kind of a chicken and egg thing for me uh, because I don't know about you, but the more that I encounter Jesus, the more that I know what Jesus wants to do in my life, the more that I know what Jesus wants to do in our world, the more that I encounter this reality and let that begin to sink in and change me, the easier it is to begin to obey that will. Because I want to do those things because they're really, really good. It's going to affect my life in ways that I would never be able to affect on my own. It changes me in a really, really positive way. And I'm happy to follow that. But it is possible to go through all that and then to reach a point where you don't obey what God's will is for your life. And let me tell you, if you do that, it will be a very sad day. There will not be a lot of joy found in living a life where you know Jesus and yet you purposefully choose to not obey what it is that he's asked you to do, where you purposefully turn away from it. Don't let that be your reality. Take joy in knowing that you live a life that pleases our Father. Take joy in knowing that your Father is the sovereign God over all and always has been. Take joy in knowing that His will, His plan, His purposes are being worked out in our world, in our lives, in His way, and in His timing. Whitman says that contentment is found within you. I'll say that that's weak. I'll just call it out. Because I think for us as followers of Jesus, the only way that you are going to find contentment is if you know Jesus and you know his will for your life and you begin to live that out. The only way that you can have true contentment is if you're doing that. Otherwise, it's this up and down game of trying to make it and trying to make yourself feel better. The only thing that solidifies you is that reality of who Jesus is and what he's doing. 
You need joy. You need patience. You need strength to make it through. Start relying on the power of Jesus and stop relying on your own ability, on your own mental uh, awareness and ability to just get through. That's where true joy is found. Let's finish Colossians 1 here. It says, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father, because he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of our dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sin. It's a good prayer. May we be filled with joy because we are enabled to live as heirs to our father. Joy comes when you live your life as an heir to our father. I know this isn't something that we talk about that much because it kind of feels like a little bit of a weird thing. Uh, it's like a will that's written from a guy who's not going to die. Uh, we're not quite sure how to, how to frame that within our context. But as followers of Jesus, we're told very clearly that we are heirs to everything that God has, to everything that Jesus came to bring. It's all been given to us. I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody who I'll, I'll call like a trust fund baby. Uh, somebody whose parents have lots and lots and lots, and they've just kind of been born into that. And so they live their whole life sitting in first class when they're eight years old, flying by themselves, you know, with all the toys in the world. You know, uh, Richie Rich was the movie that was popular when I was a kid. So that, that sort of a thing. Uh, everything's just given to you. And you encounter sometimes people like that. And it's just like nonchalant, like, oh yeah, yeah, I had that, whatever. And you're looking at them if you didn't grow up like that, if that's not your reality. And you're like, that's ridiculous. Like you went to this college and it was completely free. Like you did, you got this car when you were 16, like everything was given to you. And you're just kind of in shock of the nonchalant attitude that they have surrounding it. Friends. We do that as followers of Jesus. We're super nonchalant about everything that's been given to us. He died for us. He gave everything for us and he's given everything for us. It's ours. We're told here that it's ours, that it's handed over to us all that we need in this life to follow his will, to do what it is that he's asking us to do has already been given to us. We don't have to wait till he dies. It's already in our hands. And yet, most of the time, we, we just kind of nonchalantly push it to the side and like, oh yeah, well, I'm just kind of struggling to do what he's asking me to do. We forget that it's already been placed right in our hands. We begin to have more joy when we glimpse the power, the plan, in the presence of Jesus because his plan is always good news. His plan is for all to be made right. His plan is for all to live at peace in his kingdom. His plan is for no more hatred, no more violence, no more war. His plan is for no more racism. His plan is for no more sexual assault and abuse. His plan is for no more social inequality. And I'm not just saying a list of bad things that I wish were eradicated from our world. I'm saying the things that we're told in the Bible that is actually his plan. That's what he died for. That's what he wants to bring when he returns again. His plan is for all of that to be our truth, to be our reality. And all that we have to do is say, okay. And that's our reality too. 
His plans for wholeness, his plans for healing, his plans for restoration and reconciliation in every single way. And it's been given to us. So we choose joy. We expect joy because we know who and we know what that we're placing our joy in. It's not in us. It's in him. As we begin this series on joy, I want to invite us to ask for more, to ask to know Jesus more, because that's the key to it all. So if the worship team will come back up, and I want to invite all of you to stand, and I want to pray for us this morning to experience joy this morning, not because we've mentally convinced ourselves that everything's all right, but because we know the one who is making all things right. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come right now. Jesus, we say thank you. We thank you that as your followers that we are heirs, that you have said that it's all ours. We don't have to wait. When we said yes, you placed the tools in our hands. You placed the the necessary uh, things that we needed to become people who obeyed your will, who followed your plan, who, who lived in freedom who lived in wholeness, who lived in restoration. And we say thank you for that, Jesus. And right now, Holy Spirit, I just ask for you to begin to come and to fall upon each and every one of us that are here this morning. Jesus, we want to be changed by you. We want to be changed by your plan. We want to be changed by your power. And Jesus, we say that we want your presence to be here with us right now. So we say, come, Holy Spirit, come and begin to move in us. Come and begin to change us. We welcome you right now, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.